look forward to hearing from you and your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, are you glad to be here this morning? Yeah? There is an energy that happens in the place when God's people get together and want to worship the Lord. Amen? And you can feel it. We should be thankful for that uh, every single week. What an awesome time this morning in worship. We're wrapping up a series uh, this morning called Where Do We Go From Here? Uh, this evening, uh, we're going to do our last Q&A, our family Q&A. We've had a series of those uh, where we've tackled uh, different topics that affect uh, our homes. And this evening, uh, we have once again a, another really easy, lighthearted series of uh, questions and concerns. It's your family and technology. Um, we're going to let you make all the decisions, so we're not going to say instantly take away all of your electronics. I know, parents, there was some asking, can we just do that? Um, no, but is there uh, some principles that we can live by? That's the question we're going to be taking a look at. Are there things that Scripture says that can help guide us in our home to be able to use technology in a healthy way? And are there um, even some tools available uh, that might be able to help us? kind of be able to guide the effects of uh, electronics. So we would love for you to come. Q&A will be open. We'll have uh, an opportunity for you to be able to ask questions even this evening or else uh, throughout the day that we'll be able to tackle there on the stage. So we would encourage you to come back. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14, we're wrapping up the series and we're going to give some rules for the next step. Rules for the next step. We have Ask some questions that are very important. Is the Bible reliable? Can I trust what it says about the beginnings? What does Scripture say about family? What does Scripture say about sexuality? We've, we've uh, asked a bunch of tough questions during the course of this series, and the goal isn't just to give some answers, but it's actually to spark uh, questions, to spark uh, conversations so that we as believers are learning more from Scripture and are more capable of being able to understand God's heart. We're going to wrap up this series this morning by looking uh, at a series of statements, uh, and right at the center of it uh, is the problem. The very center of this series of verses uh, is the problem that you and I face, the reason that we struggle making godly decisions. Proverbs chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 8, go through 15. Let's stand and read this together. The scripture says this, The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Even in laughter, a heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. The naive believes everything, but the sensible man 
will consider his steps. Do you believe that's true? Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we take a look at this um, section of Scripture, these passages, I pray, Father, that uh, you would open our eyes, open our hearts, cause us to crave your direction, your desire, uh, your attitude instead of our own. And I pray, Father, uh, that you would transform our thinking as we take a look at steps that can help us make good decisions in the future. I pray it would be evident uh, from the problems that we face, the problems that we bring to the table in any decision-making process, that we need to yield everything to you, that we need to look at your truth and your word as preeminent, as greater than our own. So help us to see that, to uh, not struggle with it, Father, to apply it and to be different, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In your notes, the goal of this series has been threefold. To investigate areas in modern living that present a challenge to the Christian worldview. Secondly, to create an environment where questions and dialogue are encouraged and lead to wise convictions. And three, to champion the view that a God-driven life is the only one worth living. Amen? There was a uh, story that had come out a little while ago. Um, a, a book was written just kind of trying to capture the idea of what it is to live as a Christian in a world that is bent wrong. Uh, and this observation was made. A man living in the third century was dying when he wrote these words to a friend. It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised, persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. They are truly a joyful people. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. Is that a true statement of you? When you take a look around at the world and all of the decisions that the rest of the world is making, and you even see within Christianity this craving to be like the world, are you making decisions that are different from the world? Are you making decisions that leave you truly joyful? Are you different, not only from the world, but in your experience, in the inner life? Are you settled? Are you satisfied? Are you feeling like the Lord is the one who is guiding your steps? If not, he gives you patterns to take a look at uh, and to be able to guide your thinking. Um, there's a, a couple of things I would have you notice here in uh, verses 8 through 15. Um, originally, what I intended to do in this series was just wrap up with verse 12. Um, it's uh, an interesting thing. I, we've said it multiple times. That one of the, the great things that we learned in seminary was that reading the Bible will mess up your theology. All right? We tend to tell the Bible what we want it to say and then go there to try and find it. Uh, I was just planning on having this verse be the verse that we would wrap up with. But uh, to my utter delight, as I am sitting here studying that passage, it turns out that it's actually in the center of a chiasm, uh, a, a series of statements that build toward the center and then recede. It's like a high watermark uh, that is left. And each of these steps are meant for reflection. Um, we have a ladder here on the stage, and uh, in the Old Testament, you will find chiastic structures 
throughout, especially in the wisdom literature. You will find statements that are made, then another statement is made, and another statement is made, and it is a lot like a ladder. If you go all the way up to the top and you're trying to reach something that is the gold, the first statement, verse 8, is made. But you will also see a similar statement that uh, is made in verse 15. The idea is that you're taking a step on this rung, then this rung, then this rung. You reach the gold, but you have to pass through those rungs once again on your way back down to stable living. You can't just pass it and say, I passed that, I've done it, and I'm uh, forever um, you know, rid of that uh, step or that stage. You go through it, and you come back through it. Wisdom is to understand it coming and going. You reach that gold, the center of that understanding, and you go back through there, and your understanding grows as you touch those steps uh, receding from that gold that you have achieved. Verse 12 is the gold. Verse 12 is the centerpiece. It's what Scripture wants us to understand. But there are some things that we need to gather into our mind on our way, coming, and as we leave, going. Second thing you need to understand as we go to these verses is that each observation is meant to help us investigate our lives and obtain wisdom. It is not meant to tell you exactly what to do. How many of you have come to Scripture and said, like, uh, you wish when you hear the story of the Urin and Thummim, right? It was these two storms. It was just yes and no. And you could ask God, tell me what to do, yes or no. And how many of you have just wanted God to tell you exactly what it is you were supposed to do? Yeah, you've been there. But you know what he does? He pulls out this thing called faith, right? And he tells you, I'm going to give you some principles, but you need to stay connected to me on a daily basis or you will wander. One of the greatest gifts God gives us is he doesn't tell us exactly what to do in every situation. He allows us to walk by faith, to stay connected to him, to be drawn closer. There are tools that he uses, and this passage is one of them. As we uh, go in there, I actually read an article called Five Types of Fool. Oh, yes. It was an exciting article. Five types of fool. Every single one of these is a term that is translated fool in the New American Standard Bible. Um, but it is actually five different Hebrew words. There is the simple fool, the silly fool, the sensual fool, the scorning fool, and the steadfast fool. The simple fool, uh, that is pethi in the original language, and it means to be opened up. It's the person who never fully makes up their mind. It's one thing to have an open mind. It's another thing to never make it up, all right, to never know what is true. Second type is the silly fool. Uh, that is evil. That is to be perverse or silly. It is the idea that you uh, consistently choose the wrong side of something, the shady side of a discussion. Um, it, it is the idea of, um, in perversity, to, to consistently go the wrong direction uh, from what would be healthy. The sensual fool is an amplification of that one, kes eel, which literally means a fatso. All right? Try that on in our politically correct United States. Why is that the case? This type of fool is somebody whose appetites drive every single part of their life. And it's the appetites that ultimately lead them to death. 
It's not a mental deficiency. They reject God's statements saying, don't do that because they want to do it. Have you ever seen a two-year-old? All right. This is the proverbial continual Christian two-year-old. I know that's uh, convicting. So we'll go on to this one, the scorning fool. (laughs) This is a Lutz. You ever heard that term? A Lutz. That is to make mouths at. Okay. It's the, uh, the idea that you are looking at somebody and you're kind of whispering, you're an idiot. Okay. You're a fool. It's that idea of looking at somebody and mocking them with your facial expressions. Uh, it is a scoffer. In fact, what the scriptures indicate is that there might be an age sometime in the future where scoffing becomes so prevalent it is considered part of the culture. We might not see that in our day and age, but it's going to happen soon. <laughs> the scorning fool. And then finally, the steadfast fool. That is somebody, it's actually Nabal. There was a man named Nabal. I don't believe that was his actual name. I think that's the name that David assigned to him. But there was a man named Nabal who was literally a wicked fool. That is somebody who was foolish, who knew that they were foolish, and was some, so stuck in their foolishness that they've decided foolishness is better than wisdom, even if they knew it would lead to destruction. They are steadfast in their tomfoolery. A steadfast fool. Nabal. There are three different terms for fool that are used in this passage that we're actually going to look at. It is a type of foolishness that we choose rather than following the Lord. Just one last thing. Foolishness is not innocent. If you take a look at uh, Mark chapter 7, Jesus is speaking. And he says in verse 20, says he was saying to the men that were around him that which proceeds out of the man is that what defiles the man listen to this list from within out of the heart of men proceed these things evil thoughts fornication thefts murders adulteries deeds of coveting wickedness as well as deceit sensuality evil slander pride and foolishness It's the capstone of the list. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Foolishness is not innocent. To be a fool is not just to accidentally be naive and I stumbled into a problem or I made a mistake. Foolishness is willful ignorance. It is destructive to you. It destroys the people around you. And it is a choice. Foolishness, according to Scripture, is a lifestyle. It runs against God. He rejects wisdom. He trusts his own opinion. So what is it that Dr. Solomon would have us do as we go up these steps, as we sit there in the doctor's office and we hear his questions, what would he have us do to help us be able to decide whether or not our decisions are of the Lord or of ourselves, whether or not they are foolish or wise? He gives us some different categories here, and the first one is a general category. Just look at your life and investigate this. Verse 8 says, The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Our ability to make wise decisions is often clouded by our own mess. Foolishness of fools, uh, this is that word, kassil. It is the sensual fool. It's the idea that appetites have filled up your life, and they have so filled up your life 
that every decision you make is about how can I get what I want, or how can I justify what I want, or how can I obtain things that I probably shouldn't want, but I want them to be something that's okay for me to want. You hear that? That's basically the wonderful American life. Foolishness of the fool. The idea in verse 8 is that you have two people that come in and sit down. And they spread out their thinking on a table. And one is clear-headed. And they pull out of this box uh, a series of decisions. A map that they have of where they have been. And they look on that map according to the roads that are available. And they see where their path has been and where they are going. Where this will ultimately lead them. And there's clarity because of the way they've arranged their box. There is nothing to distract them from the ability to make a decision. One person sits down, they can decide because of the clarity of what they have stored as their decision-making process. The second person sits down, and it's a whole jumble of all the things that they're hoping will eventually happen. They don't have a map in there, but they do have a lot of cats. There's all of this destruction and mayhem and tossing around. There's chickens that fly out and children that are there and all of these different activities that they've done. They can't really find out a map where they've been. They're not sure where they've been. They're not sure where they're headed. They're not sure exactly where they're at right now, but they're hoping that if they can find just the right road, that it will lead to health. In fact, the decision that they make is whichever light turns green, I'll follow that road. By the way, not all green lights are from God, not all red lights are from Satan. Do you know that? Sometimes God puts a red light up to stop you from going the wrong direction. Satan puts up a green light to get you confused. You've got to trust the Lord. There's actually a Disney movie called Inside Out. Um, it's about emotions inside the head of uh, a little person. Uh, and it talks about all these different pathways. But the most interesting one, my kids reminded me of this, was uh, they actually had this little like x-ray machine where you could see inside the heads of different people making decisions. And one of them, anger, was the driving force. And one of them, happiness was the, or joy was the driving force. And one of them, uh, they had, uh, you know, delights, artistic stuff was the driving force. But then they took an x-ray of a cat. And the cat was random and jumping weird and all this stuff, and it falls into the x-ray machine. And what you see inside the head of the cat was, it's just a head full of cats. (laughs) And inside that head full of cats, they're making random decisions, pushing buttons, and the cat just does whatever is inside its head and drives it on. This is the truth about cats. (laughs) And it is the life that many of us live when we do not yield to the Spirit of God. We often have strong desires that drive us. Let me just speak to one. Money. There is this pervasive idea that if I can just get enough money, if I can own enough, if I can have enough, that uh, eventually I'll be happy. ABC reported that uh, people are buying tickets. This was in 2016 in the hopes of winning a, a, a high jackpot. It was $1.5 billion. In fact, it was so big, most of the billboards around the United States couldn't put the number up because they didn't have enough zeros. They didn't have enough, um, they didn't have a way to advertise it. It was built for a jackpot in the millions, not in the billions. $70 billion. That's the total amount that Americans spent on lottery in 2014, the most recent year that data was available. Is that crazy? $70 billion. NASA's annual budget for comparison, is $17 billion. 
The total amount of U.S. foreign aid for the next year, that was uh, 2016, is just shy of $38 billion. That's all of the U.S. foreign aid, not to mention anything else that would go out through mission organizations in, and, and in addition to that, NASA. We spent way more on that hoping that we'll get a billion dollars. Since 1978, they've been doing studies to find out whether or not lotto winners were happier in the first years after winning the lottery. No study since 1978 has shown that the lottery improves happiness, not once. And in the first year, in fact, across the board, gaining money leads to destructive tendencies, a lack of happiness. And yet how many of us have decisions in our life or things that we have abandoned or patterns that we have established because our wants have driven the decision-making process and God's desire, God's best, is left in the dust. Our ability to make wise decisions is often clouded by our own mess. A couple of questions I would have you write down if these are helpful. First, are your decisions clouded by your desires? Are your decisions clouded by your desires? A second good question coming out of these passages is, is your life so cluttered with activity that good decisions have been replaced by quick decisions? Is your life so cluttered with activity that good decisions have been replaced by quick decisions? General observation. That's rung one. But now we go up to a second rung. We're going to have to pass one more on our way to the gold, and that is the external. Uh, what we observe here, verse 9, fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. Verse 14, the uh, backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways. Fools mock at sin. How we treat others is a key indication of our values. Not just fools mock at sin, but some of them translate that uh, fools mock at restitution. They mock at paying back when they have wounded somebody. How we treat others is a key indication of our values. This word here for fool is evil. Uh, that's silly or somebody who is bent wrong. Somebody who consistently chooses a path that is self-driven rather than others-driven. I can remember uh, when we were kids, uh, there were many different tests of our character that were laid out. And uh, growing up in Roseburg, having a fair amount of freedom to be able to test our wisdom. <laughs> the test didn't always turn out in the positive. Uh, but I can remember a few instances where uh, I, it has stuck with me because how it turned out was way different than how it could have turned out. And I can remember one instance uh, uh, where my brother and I and my next-door neighbor, Brian Green, were all standing up on a road. And it's become kind of a famous story in, in our family. But we're all standing up on a road testing how far our BB guns would shoot. And uh, my next-door neighbor pumps his up to 10, says, I think I can hit my dad's Mercedes from here. He missed it, of course. I think he fired actually wide right. Uh, but my brother was fairly successful. <laughs> it was a Mercedes, and uh, all the way uh, to down to investigate the cracking sound that we had heard after the BB hit it, we were told about how special this window in the Mercedes was that you can't get the glass for. It's the one that is wrap around, you know, so that bent wrap. 
uh, Mercedes. But here we had an opportunity to decide whether or not there would be foolishness or wisdom. Now, Aaron has always been the kind that would tell the truth. So even though the son is saying, let's never tell dad. And they had that kind of relationship where telling dad was going to cost him dearly. Uh, Aaron said, no, I, I want to make sure that I tell Jack. So he stood there to make sure that uh, Jack would know that uh, ultimately that he was the one that shot the window. It eventually got paid for. I don't even remember how all of the money transacted and how they eventually got that window in there. I do remember that Jack Green was proud that Aaron didn't run uh, and that that was a test of character. Have you ever done something in a moment and you knew the moment that the outcome was perceived that it was wrong? What you do at that moment is a test of whether you will be wise or a fool, of whether or not you are driven by God's best or man's. Pay for it. Stand there. Pay the restitution because you are more concerned about them than you are about yourself. It's the path to wisdom. Every one of us does something foolish. But if we're bent wrong, we will run and enjoy it. Don't be a fool. The external thing, two questions for you. How do you treat others from whom you can gain nothing? How do you treat others who will not be able to invest in you in any significant way? And secondly, how do I treat the property of others? Do I value what somebody else owns as highly as I value my own? You break something on accident that you've borrowed, are you more concerned about replacing that with equal or greater value? Or are you trying to get out of that as cheaply as you can? We have the first rung, that's the general observations. Our ability to make wise decisions can quite often be clouded by our own mess. The second one is external, how we treat others becomes visible. But there's a third rung on this ladder on our way to the gold. That's an internal observation. And this one moves away from foolishness just to be able to investigate our own hearts. It says this in verse 10, The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share in its joy. How we are doing is not truly seen by others, and it cannot be experienced by them. Do you know that? Now, we quite often make comments about Facebook and this generation, but do you know how much time we spend, not just as Americans, but globally, how much time we spend trying to get others to feel our pain or to appreciate our victories? We spend an inordinate amount of time trying to tell others about our joys. And one of the things we have to ask is, why am I trying to tell others about those joys? Am I trying to make them jealous? Am I trying to make them appreciative? Or am I trying to make them feel what I feel? It used to be a joke, right, that we would go to the grocery store and you always were wondering whether or not you were going to stand by the very excited grandmother with the list of pictures or the pile of pictures of their own grandchildren. And you didn't just get to see the pictures, but there's a story behind each one. For hours, as the ice cream is melting and as the guy is waiting for the payment. But how often do we do that? It's not bad to be excited about family. It's not bad to, to have an excited moment and want to share that with the world. It is a sign of weakness if we cannot be happy unless others are happy for us. If we cannot be happy unless other people are telling us we have done well. 
That's the main concern. The heart is the only one that can know bitterness or joy. They can never know how deep your sorrow is. They can never know how significant your happiness is. And you need to be settled that God has given you a personal experience that is between you and him. Trying to get others to experience that also uh, will break you. An internal test. The third, on that, uh, the third rung on that ladder is not one that you look outside for, but it's internally. Do you assign motives to other people's actions? Do you instantly assume that they're trying to harm you, trying to help you? Is everything in reference to you? Secondly, how much time do you spend worrying about what others will think or trying to validate your feelings? There's an internal battle on the way to the gold. But now we come to the central one. This is the verse that I wanted to be able to preach on, verses 11 and 12. It says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Notice that that verse doesn't sound like that it has a positive and negative like all of the others. Like a normal proverb. It just says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it'll kill you. How positive is that? It's like Solomon messed up and forgot how, you know, it's like somebody screamed out at him, no more rhyming and I mean it. <laughs> Here he is and he wraps up with in its end is the way of death. The essence of this is this. Success is measured by proximity to God, not prosperity. Proximity to God, not prosperity. Why do I get that? In verse 11, it says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright. What's more stable, a house or a tent? Do you know it's always been this way? A house tends to be a better place to weather a storm. Tent is transitory. It's the idea that you are just passing through. The house of the wicked, something that is established, that is successful, that has a seemingly great value, falls away one generation later. The tent of the righteous, those people who have followed the Lord, who have made wise decisions, who are focused on him and rather than the, themselves, well, people remember them generation after generation after generation, not because of all that they have passed down monetarily, but because of the significance of the character of their soul, because of who they were, the, the character of their inner person. Genesis chapter 3 gives us a good perspective on what scripture means by death. It does not always mean that you physically die. That term for death is quite often used for uh, destruction in this life or separation from God. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember the story? Here they are in the middle of the garden. They were told, just don't eat of this fruit. And what does God say? The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, Eve goes through a list. She begins to look at it. She says, well, it looks like it's good for food. It looks like it's shiny. It's like all the other fruit that we're supposed to be able to eat. It looks like it's actually useful to make us wise. She had a list of discovering uh, that she went through in order to look at the properties and say, well, look, all of these things. But the one test she didn't apply was a test that God had actually given her. Will it kill me? All of these things were true. But she partook of it, and it did lead in separation. It led in the destruction. What happens? Instantly their home is destroyed. 
their safety is destroyed. They're driven out of Eden. You want to know what the first thing that her and Adam did? They go and they cover up and they hide from God. There is separation. Wisdom leads to closeness with God. Foolishness leads to separation. Man's decisions tend to separate him. We actually have a, a picture of a guy here. This is just moments before uh, a very interesting accident. Lieutenant Vickers here uh, was taking his commander out in an F-14 Tomcat. Uh, and he had warned the commander that when they were doing some of the rollovers or flying upside down that they could get disoriented to be very careful. The commander had flown at one time in the front of a plane, but never in the back. Normally he would have his hand on the stick. Sitting in the back, a guy who had flown many times becomes disoriented, grabs onto something. Turns out when they're upside down, it was the ejection seat. <laughs> so they're flying 360 knots. Thankfully, they weren't going as fast as they could be going. Uh, the guy, the, the pilot says, it turns out I'm driving a convertible. <laughs> it was the most unprofessional uh, moment that he had. Uh, here is commander that was checking out the uh, F-14 Tomcats and listening to one of his lead pilots talk about uh, the fleet that he, they had and, and all of these amazing things. He ejects partway out. They have to run out and get him. He survives it. They said that it was an interesting thing. They asked him what had happened. He said that in the process of just being upside down, he got so disoriented he didn't know where he was supposed to be. There's actually an interesting thing um, that uh, came out or a, an observation made by Vernon Wright. He was a former uh, naval aviator. He was a trainer. Um, and he says, while flying under instrument flight conditions, that's where the pilot can't see Earth's horizon, it's relatively easy to develop spatial disorientation, which is sometimes called vertigo, particularly if the pilot's in a turn. He says, I would do this demonstration with a student to prove to them that they could not trust themselves, but they always had to trust the instruments. He said, my demonstration was to tell, their student to close, or tell the student to close their eyes, and then I would make a snap roll to the right, and I would enter into a tight turn. I would then very gently and slowly bring the craft back to level flight, then give control to the student. Almost all of my students, having felt the effects of the hard turn, continued to feel that they were still in a hard turn, and when given control, would immediately roll the other direction and put themselves into an unusual and unsafe attitude. Um, that's the way that they call a plane, which is pretty appropriate for us, isn't it? They would roll the opposite direction and end up in a, uh, a scary situation. The purpose of the demonstration was to show the student that he or she must look at the instruments before attempting to recover from an unusual attitude. That's so appropriate. How do you make decisions? You've got to look at the instruments. You cannot trust your opinion. There is a way that seems right to man, but every single time your instruments are the things you should check because your ability to discern right and wrong, to know what is best, is skewed. Coming out of the garden, there was a hard snap, right? And ever since then, we do not know how to orient ourselves in the world. What Scripture says is, you need to trust what I'm saying. Otherwise, you will make decisions that will destroy you. How do you know whether or not you've lived a, a wise life? Some of us are looking for validation today. Some of us are looking for validation right now. But the indication is here that the tent of the upright and the house of the wicked will not know whether or not they've been upright or wicked for one generation. 
that it will either rise or fall. In other words, the next generation tells us how we have lived. It's an interesting thing. 70% of all the money from wealthy families is lost by the second generation. 90% of it by the third. One family member makes a lot of money, millions of dollars in one study that was done. So they did a study of people who had made over $10 million through their business specs. Within two generations, it's all gone consistently. There's only 4 to 6% of families are able to retain their wealth for more than two generations. Why? They have learned patterns in the process of gaining all of that stuff that are destructive. Instead of being wise, it's all lost. Instead of discussing long-term planning, they discover that they have short-term desires. They're right back in the area of being a fool. The questions at the very center, the gold, come from this. Are you trying to fly your life without instruments? Are you trying to fly free without looking to God? Do your kids know that you are not the source of truth? Write that down. Do your kids know you're not the source of truth? How often do you go to Scripture? What is it that they see you doing when you make decisions? This morning, we're trying to wrap up a series where we're asking whether or not the Bible is reliable. I think what we've shown each step along the way is that you can trust Scripture. Amen? And trying to decide whether or not we can trust what it says about beginnings whether or not we can trust what it says about the reality of life, whether it trusts what it says about how to have a successful marriage, trust what it says about running our family or our sexuality or any number of things. And what we've found each time is that the Bible's wisdom not only corrects our thinking, but it leads to peace. It leads to a settled state. It leads to being established. The question is, will we look to the Lord and his opinion, or will we look to our own? Let's pray. Father, we do ask, um, even this morning as we consider the rungs on a ladder, we step our way through general knowledge, uh, looking at how we treat people on the outside, our own internal battles, but we ultimately arrive at whether or not we will do what we want to do or we will do what you want us to do. Father, I pray this morning that you will bring not only um, insight, but that you would bring conviction. Help us to be able to see what it is that you would have us do next. Father, I pray that we would be transformed, um, that we would see the truth of your word, that we would see the power that it has to not only change our life, but to give us wisdom. And Father, I pray that you would help us to live differently. Not just a result of this series, but as a result of a life that is continually chasing after you, I pray that you would help us as a congregation to be seen as wise, to live in a way that impacts the world around us for your best. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.